Welcome to another episode of Got Guts, a podcast of the American Journal of Physiology, Gastrointestinal, and Liver Physiology. Joining us today are Editor-in-Chief Professor Mark Fry and authors Dr. Carrie Duckworth and Professor Mark Pritchard of the recently published research titled NF-kappa-B2 Deficiency and Its Impact on Plasma Cells and Immunoglobulin Expression in Marine Small Intestinal Mucosa. So let's talk guts. Over to you, Mark. Well, good morning, Jamie, or I guess good afternoon if you're in Liverpool, Mark and Carrie. Uh, <laughs> yep. Thank you for Stop joining us today. I'm delighted to have you here on the podcast uh, to talk about your work. It's uh, a lovely rainy day in Los Angeles, which is unusual, so I'm staying inside to talk physiology. Let's start off, as we often do, by getting your summary of this really intriguing paper that you wrote. Um, Mark, would you like to kick us off by, you know, give, tell us a little bit about the background and how you got into this work? Yeah, thank you, Mark. So we're talking in Liverpool and not unusually at all. It's also raining here, but that's much more <laughs> commonplace than in, uh, in Los Angeles. Yeah. Oh, you're, you're always welcome to ship barrels of it over here. We, we, need, yeah. we need every ounce or, 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 or centiliter here. So, yeah. So, um, We've been interested in uh, the NF-kappa-B family of proteins and their role in the GI tract for a few years now. And initially, perhaps a decade ago, we started to look at the role of several family members looking at um, mouse knockouts of each of those. We looked at NF-kappa-B1 knockouts, NF-kappa-B2 knockouts, C-rel knockouts, and REL-B knockouts. And the one with the most intriguing phenotype were the NF-kappa-B2 knockouts. And so they're the ones that we've developed most over the last seven years or so. Um, so we've looked at a number of models. So we looked at the H. felis, Helicobacter felis stomach cancer model, and the NF-kappa-B2 null mice were protected against gastric preneoplasia in that model. Uh, we looked at the DSS colitis model, and again, they're protected from DSS colitis. And we looked at the DSS azoxymethane colon cancer model, uh, and they were also protected from that. And then we moved on and we looked at acute lipopolysaccharide and TNF-induced injury in the small intestinal mucosa. So those agents cause the shedding and apoptosis of cells from the villus tip in the small intestine. And again, the NF-kappa-B2 null mice were more resistant to undergoing cell shedding in that uh, scenario. So those were in vivo studies. Uh, and Carrie and her team have followed up some of that work looking at enteroid models. So uh, 3D cultures made from the small bowel of the NF-kappa-B2 null mice and showed that they're resistant in vitro as well to TNF-induced injury. So uh, an epithelial phenotype there. So we've shown an interesting phenotype in those mice and we wanted to understand a bit more about the underlying mechanism. So as you do, we did RNA-seq and we did proteomic analysis of the small intestinal mucosa. So we just took the, we did scrapes to get the mucosa off the, and just analyzed that. Uh, and we found a phenotype in these by RNA and then in, in terms of protein of a deficiency largely in immunoglobulin A, in IgA. Uh, and followed that up by showing that there was a defect in plasma cells in the small intestinal mucosa. So this is something that had been recognized already in the 
initial papers describing the phenotype of these mice, there was a, an immune cell phenotype alterations in lymph nodes and the spleen and, and various things. But we showed that that was also true in the, um, in the small intestinal mucosa. So that's basically what the paper showed and how we got there and why we did the study. Yeah, that's great. Great. Uh, Carrie, do you have anything to, do you want to, uh, any additional spin to add to that or? Yeah, I, um, so I think that, uh, I mean, the, the study was quite intriguing, actually. Um, and I think any of the listeners, um, if they're not integrated into the NF-kappa B field, may not go far wrong if they can just think that everything activates NF-kappa B and then NF-kappa B activates everything. So we're kind of in the middle of this and uh, trying to kind of dissect the role of NF-kappa B in the gut, but um, trying to remember at every opportunity that NF-kappa B operates in a tissue type and context dependent manner, because what we get in other tissues is very different to what we see in cell types in the gut. Um, so this kind of draws me to this publication in that it's quite intriguing in that I think it actually poses more questions than it actually answers, which is probably an indicator of a, 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 an interesting paper, uh, hopefully. Um, it means it's, it's something important and there's plenty of opportunity for grant applications based on it now, right? Hopefully. So <laughs> um, yeah, I, anyone Mark is smiling there. now, I see that. <laughs> anyone wants to send some money this way, we'd be, uh, we'd be quite happy to have it. <laughs> So, so yeah, so I think there's a few things that we do touch on in the, in the publication in, in the manuscript that we do need to probably address moving forward. Um, so we've only kind of scratched the surface, I think, of what's going on in terms of NF-kappa B in, in the, the, the gut mucosa. It's something that we need to dissect quite a little bit more and build on from this study. So just as an example really within the sequencing we've done quite a lot of sequencing within within the, the study and we identified that uh 50 of the differentially regulated genes are associated with b, b cell defects which was why we we um, took that on for, for this particular study um however other kind of signaling pathways or, or groups of genes come out of there one of those being interferons uh, which we do mention very briefly uh, they're, they're obviously involved with uh, kind of stem cell niche regulation and things like that. Also with like the sting pathway and oncogenesis. So some of these things we might be able to tease out at a later, later date to try and address some of our previous studies that Mark mentioned about the NF-kappa B2 mice, knockout mice, being resistant to uh, colorectal cancer induction, for instance. Mm -hmm. So it's, I think it's also highlighted a few other pathways that we haven't gone into in depth that, are, that we have mentioned within the, the paper. Um, ST6-GAL1, which we also uh, talk about in, in, the, in the manuscript, is also in, associated with uh, increases in human colorectal cancers, and that's reduced within the NF-CoV-B2 uh, deficient mice so there's, there's quite a few underlying themes going on here and um, with us identifying a defect in IgA secretion and also in uh, an increase in IgM uh, production uh, mm -hmm. within the gut within, within the study this obviously has immune implications which is known about in the NF-kappa B field and in context of the alternative pathway 
but also we've got to bear in mind that this could have knock-on effects on the intestinal microbiome, which is a, a you know a, a big thing at the moment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, th- I think there are a, a large number of questions from the study that are kind of yet to be answered, and it's uncovered a, you know kind of more things for us to go and do. It's it's sort of the curse of signaling biology, isn't it? That as you said at the top there, everything everything responds to everything and and does everything <laughs> and teasing apart the what happens in individual cell types and uh, in individual contexts is really the key which is what it's it seems you're you're really making some good progress on with this study mm-hmm. so and you're also if if i remember correctly you're also taking this into you've you've been doing some work looking at this in the epithelial intrinsic signaling using organoids as well uh, are you are you finding that it's dramatically different outcomes when you separate the epithelium from the immune system or mm-hmm. does it seem to be protective even in that setting i think um what was quite surprising to me initially so i i um under took a program of work in in enteroids as part of um when i initially became a tenure track fellow a few years ago and within the kind of NF-kappa-B field, there's uh, been a lot of research done on the non-canonical pathway in immune cells, but mm-hmm. not very much done on epithelial cells because people feel as though it's not very interesting. <laughs> um, so we weren't quite sure what was going to happen. Um, what has, As we've recently seen in um, following giving dextron sulfate sodium to mice to induce colitis in the NF-CoV-B2 knockout uh, mice, and they were resistant. We, we didn't, in a whole organism, we couldn't understand which cell types were important in that process in generating colitis. It could have just been an immune-mediated effect given, given the action of the non-canonical pathway on the immune system. However, um, when we isolated the epithelium to grow enteroids, they were also resistant to um, damage induced by cytokines and other stimuli. Mm-hmm. So that does suggest that the non-canonical pathway is also important in the intestinal epithelium. And uh, in developing co-culture models with dendritic cells from the epithelium, we were able to show that we could stimulate the dendritic cells to damage the epithelium in, in the enteroid model in the co-culture mm-hmm. system. Um, and that the epithelium from the NF-kappa-B2 knockout animals was resistant to, to the effects of those cytokines. Mm-hmm. What, we've, um, what we're going on to do now is to look at those mechanisms. So we've not really delved into the specific mechanisms in epithelial cells versus the immune populations yet, but that, that's in progress. It's, so that's some of where this is going next. That's okay. That's mm-hmm. great. That's great. And that, and that feels like a, a actually like a pretty important advance potentially, uh, since probably a lot of our listeners will recollect that maybe 20 years ago, NF-kappa-B was tried about as a target for things like inflammatory bowel disease, because inhibiting in a general NF-kappa-B signaling inhibitors can tamp down on immune cell uh, behavior. But they didn't work very well because general NF-kappa B inhibition was toxic to the epithelium. And it seems like drilling down on a specific isoform, specific sub-pathway here, you're actually finding a target that could be could could be much more beneficial in, in the sense that it'll be pulling in the same direction on both the, the immune cells and the epithelium. So that's exciting. I, I, Mark, you were waving your hand. Did you have... <laughs> 
uh, yeah, so I just wanted to try and bring out some of the complexity here because it's really, really complex. So yeah. or, or, Carrie's already said everything affects NF cover B and NF cover B affects everything. Um, there are five family members of the so five subunits of the NF cover B family. They all seem to do different things in different places. The dogma goes that um, the alternative or non-canonical NF cover B pathway is only involved in the immune system. Uh, and that's what's been thought for a while. But Carrie's work with the enteroids, as well as some bone marrow transplant experiments that we've done and didn't publish in time and were scooped by another group who published those, have demonstrated that in this pathway, NF-kappa-B2 plays a role both in the epithelium and the immune cell. So the phenotype we found with RNA-seq and proteomics was mostly the immune one, but it undoubtedly mm -hmm. has an effect in the epithelium as well. But in our paper, we also looked at the other alternative NF-kappa-B signaling pathway family member, RLB, which is thought to be very similar in its function to NF-kappa-B2. And while we found the similar phenotype of a lack of plasma cells, CD138 positive plasma cells in the, uh, epith in the mucosa of RLB knockout mice, the same epithelial phenotype isn't there because the mm -hmm. RELB mm -hmm. knockout mice don't have the same response to acute administration of lipopolysaccharide that the NF-kappa-B2 null mice have. So even within the alternative NF-kappa-B signaling pathway in the same tissue, the two family members are having some similar but also other different effects. So it's extremely complicated and teasing all of this out is... Uh, will probably last me till the end of my career <laughs> and beyond it's like it's like a fractal the deeper you go the the, yeah, the, the really level of complexity never changes yeah yeah, yeah. It's it's really complex so this is really exciting work let's let's shift gears a bit though and talk about the folks who did the work our listeners like to find out more about the people who are in the field learn more about other physiologists let's start with you mark how did you end up where you're at how did you get into science what what, what is it that drew you to the most interesting organ system in the body? And uh, tell us a little bit about your background. Yeah, so, so I'm a clinician by background. So I went to medical school in, um, in Manchester in the UK and did some initial clinical training. It's a slightly different pathway from, from in the US where you don't choose a specialty straight after medical school. We do a bit of general training. And during that time, I, I, I did a rotation, a six-month job in gastroenterology and enjoyed that and then decided that's what I wanted to do. So I then went back to school and did a, a PhD uh, and that was in, in, well, it was a regulation of, of apoptosis in the GI tract. So this was in the late 90s when apoptosis was in its heyday and I, I looked at regulation of chemotherapy induced apoptosis in the gut with members of the BCL2 family, P53, mm -hmm. genes like that, but looking at uh, using transgenic mice as, as my approach and as my model system. So that's where I, I learned to do these sorts of uh, experiments and approaches. Uh, and then since then, I've, I, I still have a clinical practice in gastroenterology, uh, but have maintained lab work. And I moved from Manchester to, um, to Liverpool more than 20 years ago now. I've been in Liverpool since. And over the time, my interests have, have changed but then gone back, interestingly, to what I was interested in at the start as well. So I've recently been in a project where we've been looking at uh, 5-FU-induced toxicity in the gut again, 
Mm-hmm. Um, over the years, I've, I've become interested in NF Kappa B and that signaling pathway, which is one of the things going on here. Uh, and I've also been interested in the endocrinology of the gut. So my my clinical practice now involves neuroendocrine tumors uh, and hormone signaling in the in the in the GI tract. So uh, I've got a, another research interest in particularly in gastrin gastric mm-hmm. neuroendocrine mm-hmm. tumors and those are the other sorts of things that I, I do and that's they form the bulk of my clinical practice these days it sounds like that that's a whole an area that you're uh that the folks in your lab are going to have to start reading about probably to be, uh, to be well, ready for the next left turn so we, we, i mean we've, we've published some some papers in, in ajp over the years on, mm-hmm. on that not, not for a while but uh that works still ongoing as well so that mm-hmm. those two main avenues to the research i'm currently doing mm-hmm. one is along endocrine signaling and, and neuroendocrine tumors the other one focuses a bit more on, on the nf kappa b signaling cool great hello and how about you carrie yeah. Did you always want to be a scientist <laughs> growing up or? Um, yes. Yeah, so um, uh, yeah. I did. I, uh, I, I don't know whether I'm unique or not, but about around about the age of four, I requested, uh, well, I was allowed to have a bike for my birthday, but I said, I don't want a bike. Thank you. Please can I have a microscope. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I think I still got it in a cupboard somewhere. Um, a very small, <laughs> a very small microscope. Um, and uh, yeah, so did you get the bike as well then or no well oh, i got okay. a second hand bike from my cousin okay. so, so i had okay. a bike um so i suppose i did get both in the end um uh yeah so i i used to i actually used to think i was really naughty and i used to hide away in uh, in, a, in the box room at home and, uh, and pull an old encyclopedia out from underneath the bed which had pictures of the like the human body in cross section mm, mm-hmm. i used to uh, sit there and read about it thinking that I was looking at naked pictures or something, and, and it, was, it was like along along those <laughs> lines. And so, from those um, salacious beginnings, a, a fantastic research career. Uh, yeah. So um, it didn't really change. I did a job study in what's year nine, uh, age fourteen, uh, in in the UK on uh, becoming a, a biotechnologist or microbiologist, mm-hmm. and realised that I needed to go to university. My my family didn't go to university, so I'm I'm the first first person in my family to go to, to university um went to a very kind of state school background here in the uk mm-hmm. and eventually applied to cambridge and went ended up at cambridge university to do a B- bsc uh, well it wasn't a bsc because they don't they're strange they don't award bscs so i got a ba in natural sciences mm-hmm. and then uh, actually came i knew i wanted to have my own lab that's that, that was the ultimate aim so i uh I don't live that far away from Liverpool, and mm-hmm. uh, so I opted to come to Liverpool to do my PhD, and I've been here ever since. So I've not got a very mm-hmm. colourful, a colourful background compared to many people. But uh, I did do uh, three kind of separate postdocs in the middle of all of that, working for mm-hmm. different people, and then I um, haven't moved very far down the corridor. <laughs> since, since uh, when, when I started I think I think you, you raised a point earlier on about this podcast being for younger people and their careers um, one of the reasons it's not that I'm not ambitious I think I'm quite ambitious uh, I, I enjoy traveling uh, around the world going to different labs and doing different uh, things when I've got the opportunity but family do also mean quite a lot to me and that's quite difficult in this career sometimes mm-hmm. And I now have two young children, age two and five, and 
I'm very fortunate because their grandparents live within kind of driving distance away. Mm -hmm. That's really helpful. And I, I really, I'm very grateful for uh, the, the way that my career's gone, to be honest. And I, th I think that should be discussed. Yeah, more, absolutely. More, uh, kind of uh, openly. Yeah. And I actually think that you've, I mean, that that's a really important thing to be talked about. Mm -hmm. And also you've touched on something sort of, in talking about your background that I want to circle circle to, you're the first in your family, first generation who went to university and went on obviously then to graduate school. And there's been a number of studies lately that really show that there's an enormous bias in academia where the vast majority of tenure track or tenured faculty had parents with PhDs, mm -hmm. much less who went to university. And I think there are a lot of systemic barriers, one of which is the expectation that people will move around at the drop of a hat, right? And I think it's important for young scientists from backgrounds who, you know, who, who are non-traditional for science to see that people can still be very successful while insisting on having a family life and putting guardrails around how they how they are have to move and things like that. So mm -hmm. I, I completely agree that talking about this is important. So well done. <laughs> oh, thank you. I'm, um, I'm still trying. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, I mean, if I can come in here, I'm, I'm a bit older than Carrie now, but <laughs> in my time when I was training, even as, as a clinician scientist, there was this sort of an, uh, expectation as a clinician scientist in the UK that you went to the US for two or three years to do a postdoc and get experience there. Um, I, I didn't. I was supposed to go. Uh, I was supposed to go to Tim Wong's lab for a while, but uh, he ended up moving institution at the time when I was supposed to go. And so it, it never really happened mm -hmm. for a few mm -hmm. weeks rather than a year or two, as was planned. But I think, you know, these dogmas about what you have to do have changed significantly over the years. There's many, many ways of having this career. It's about getting the right people who are keen and enthusiastic and have got good ideas to do it. And there are multiple ways that you can do that. Carrie's demonstrated that you can mm -hmm. stay in the same institution and progress up uh, and, and still achieve the same things. Other people may prefer to move around. That's great. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think what's important is to have that variety of approaches and not say that there's one size fits all and everybody has to go down the same pathway. There are clinicians like me who become scientists. There are scientists who become clinicians. There are mm -hmm. uh, There's lots and lots of ways of doing this. And it's a matter of getting the right people, encouraging those uh, and giving them support in order to be able to do it in the best way for them. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I should talk offline about maybe asking the two of you to write a perspectives piece for uh, for the journal on this. this is, I mean, this is a really important topic. And uh, it. I think a lot of the young, younger generation of scientists are talking about it, but we don't hear enough established investigators I, I mean, I think shining a light on this. That's being recognized in the UK more and more. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I'm not. I'm not aware of what's what's going on in the US to the same extent. Yeah. So I think now being recognised. Um, I think it's started... You know these sorts of mm. equal opportunities for all and, and mm -hmm. people of different backgrounds. It's being strongly encouraged 
uh, in the UK being talked about a lot more. Mm-hmm. Sorry, carry on. Oh, no, no, it's fine. Uh, so I think there's um, a lot kind of talk about it and about changing culture, but that's very difficult to do. So there's a lot of, I think, comments that I've probably had over the years, people advising me to move, that type of thing, that I didn't want to become less happy I'm quite a happy person um I I, I do a lot of happy things <laughs> and uh, I enjoy work I enjoy the, the the academic life and the work-life balance is not great sometimes <laughs> <You don't. laughs> um, and uh yeah I think this. I think there's still. I, th- I think it's better in the U- UK, but uh, I, I do think there are a few barriers to staying in the same location for mm-hmm. too long. I think one one of the things that I've, I'm seeing a lot is that the not not, not to go too far down the rabbit hole on this, uh, but uh, <laughs> there's a lot of uh, open discussion about removing these barriers early on in careers. But then when it comes to promotion and tenure processes at universities, that's that's where you suddenly see this steep drop off of people who don't follow the old script, as it were. There's a, there's a lot of assistant professors who did it differently and not so many associate and full professors who did. And that, that's, I think, part of the next piece of the conversation that has to be had, that, that different the, – the, the, and this may be the sort of thing where it, the, the, it's going to change over time – naturally as the people who grew up in the old system you know retire or eventually change their minds but i i don't know uh again i I think it comes back to what you said is that talking about it openly is the first Mm -hmm. step to really making a change i think it's become a lot easier these days as well because of all of modern technologies and we can Mm -hmm. have virtual meetings whenever you need them um right Right. as we're doing now And, you know, you can still travel. It's not that you're right. rooted to the spot. Right, right. Uh-huh. Cool. All right. So it's Friday night in Liverpool. The big experiment has blown up in your face on Friday afternoon. What do you go do in Liverpool on a Friday night to cheer yourselves up after a terrible day in the lab? And don't tell me go home and play with your kids, Carrie. That doesn't count. So, well, I'll, I'll start that one off because Carrie and I do the same thing, but in a different place. So not on a Friday night, but on a Saturday morning, we're both parkrun obsessives. So I don't know, you've perhaps not heard of parkrun in the U- US, but parkrun is a, a free 5K run at 9 a.m. on a Saturday morning. Okay. Um, I've, I've now, d- we, we've done... We do them in completely different places most of the time, but I've now done 166 of them. And I think Carrie is on one more or one less. One than less, me. I think. I think I'm on one about 165, but we've not been, um, we, we haven't been coordinating. But, <laughs> but, so it's usually not going out and painting the town red on a Friday night. It's more <laughs> preparing ourselves for park run on this a This has got to be the morning. most wholesome answer I've had for this to this question in, in all the podcasts we've done. No, but, but, <laughs> this, is a, this is an initiative that is huge in the UK mm-hmm. and has moved into lots of Europe I don't think it's found its way across the Atlantic much yet Uh, but it's one of these you know at at my local event there are 500 people who turn up on a Saturday morning to Mm. run around the park Mm -hmm. Uh, and it's revolutionized my fitness I was doing Mm -hmm. very little in in terms of fitness but doing that regularly as well as uh, and as a result of doing it on Saturday I go running and whatever in the week uh, as well but sure uh, sure um, yeah but that sort of thing it's a gateway you know, run, basically. Yeah. You know, we've just, you know, we've we've had COVID, as I'm sure it's not a surprise to anybody, and 
one of the very few things we could actually do in the UK at that time was go out and exercise. It was one of mm -hmm. the few things we were allowed to do. So, um, you know. You know what the real just... answer to that question is, though? What's that? I'd probably go back to the lab and set it up again. Yeah, actually, you <laughs> then, would. Knowing then you. go home, <laughs> then play tennis, and mm -hmm. then go to part run. <laughs> well, that's right. That's right. You're, you're quite an avid tennis player, right, yeah. Carrie? I, I was. I was quite good yeah. when I was younger, um, mm -hmm. county, but I, yeah, I don't play as regularly mm -hmm. anymore. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Work-life balance thing, but um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I do play. I try to play on a Friday evening. Mm -hmm. Great. Good. Um, uh, yeah, in the local league. Fantastic. So, but that's 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 actually a really great initiative. The organizing people to sort of in a to just because five just about anybody can do a five k if you can run at all, right? I mean, there's you know if you, and, if you and can't run, you obviously it's, now. So you know you can walk it. There's yeah. a there's mm -hmm. a tail walker who comes in last every time, so nobody comes last at park run because there's mm -hmm. always a volunteer. No, there's there's a designee who does that. Yeah. That's yeah. Uh, and it's being encouraged now to, so, I mean, as in the US, levels of fitness are low, levels of obesity mm -hmm. are high. Mm -hmm. uh, the, you know, these are initiatives to try and deal with some of these uh, societal mm -hmm. ills. Uh, and it's one that is quite popular in the UK and lots of people who are not necessarily running 5K in 15 minutes uh, mm -hmm. are, are now taking it up. Uh, that's that's great. great. If anyone can register on the free website for a free barcode and then go to no, we're, <laughs> we're not being paid by Parker and to be ambassadors. Actually, though, it does link into our, into our work in some ways. I mean, it, it links mm -hmm. into lifestyle medicine. They call it um, mm -hmm. kind of lifestyle medicine here. And a lot of um, general practitioners' practices promote it. Um, and that obviously links into diet, nutrition and health and mm -hmm. uh, intestinal microbiome and how that interacts with your gut epithelium. So we, we kind of come back around in a circle back yeah. to... Yeah. Yeah. making it relevant to um, what we do in the lab on a day-to-day -day basis. And, and <laughs> exercise almost certainly alters NF-kappa-B activity. Mm -hmm. Oh, yes, definitely. Without a doubt. Fantastic. So what do you think the next big thing in you know, your area of research is going to be? Not, not asking you to tell us what your next grant application is, but like, what's the, where do you think the field, if you had to speculate where the field will be in five years, what, what do you think is going to be the, what, what's the new exciting direction? I mean, I'll throw this one to Carrie because. Oh, wow. Um, that's quite a big ask. Um, there's mm -hmm. quite a lot going on, isn't there? I think in, in a kind of more directed term, follow, following on from uh, this study and in the kind of uh, NFKB B arena, looking at looking at therapeutic targets, not not just MFKB, but maybe things that, that the transcription factor regulates um, mm -hmm. and things that are starting to come out. So I mentioned interferon signaling late earlier on that leads into kind of stem cells and the stem cell niche. So I think there's a lot that we need to know about the stem cell niche in the gut. And so, I mean, we've only just really worked out that you can de-differentiate again after you've different, terminally differentiated. Um, there's new cell populations that seem to pop up, like, like in terms of telocytes along the cryptolis mm -hmm. axis and, and how they signal to epithelial cells and what's the status of their NF-kappa-B and how important is that for regulating epithelial cell function and barrier function in the gut and how that regulates cell shedding at the villus tip and uh, how that also contributes to barrier function and how we can inhibit all of these processes to uh, get a healthier gut in the context of various different GI diseases. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Great. 
Mark, you any, anything to add there? Um, so I'm a clinician first as physiologist mm -hmm. second. So I'm always thinking translationally. And mm -hmm. we, we have been doing some work uh, as to the role of this signaling pathway as a target. Um, and it's not ready for publication yet, but we have got some interesting uh, data looking particularly in the enteroid model initially, because we've got an in vitro, in, in vitro model at, at pharmacologically inhibiting the pathway mm -hmm. and its consequences. And the interesting thing will be whether we can translate that and develop that into uh, a potential therapeutic approach initially in, in animal models and then take that through to humans. That's the direction we're going. It's very early days. We've got some promising and interesting findings. Uh, it's not ready to be shared yet, but mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Um, it's, cool. It looks potentially interesting. Outstanding. Great. All right. Well, this has been a, a lot of fun talking with the two of you about this. It's been far too long since we've caught up in the first place, but th this is this has been a lot of fun for me. Jamie, do you have uh, questions you want to ask or anything you want to talk about before we wrap up? Yeah, I have the traditional question. How did you guys <laughs> feel about joining the Got Guts podcast series? How, how do we feel about it? Yeah, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of delighted to be asked. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I think it's a great initiative, actually, because it does uh, get people talking a little bit more openly about the work in a slightly less formal context. Um, yeah, so I'm quite excited by the whole prospect. Yeah, no, I, Don't I edit agree. me out the whole thing. <laughs> yeah. I, I agree completely. So there are a few podcasts now in various different uh, guises and different aspects of things that I'm involved with and they're just a, a fun way of, of sharing things and I, I don't know when people listen to these I suspect it's while they're out running or on the way home or in the car or I don't know when people listen to them but it's approaching science and, uh, and medicine in, in a slightly different and less formal way and mm. I think it's useful and uh, interesting to participate in so if anybody else gets asked I'd uh, encourage you to agree to take part. Thanks, guys. Yeah. And then one cheeky question: What's the most overrated cell type in the in the gut? Hmm. A, a cell that's destined for apoptosis. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> what, should, what do you think, Mark? Uh, I don't know. I, I've definitely got my favorites. My favorites are the enterendocrine cells. But okay. That's not the answer. That's not the question you ask. But that's how we, most people answer questions at conferences. They ask you the question. They answer the question. They, they answer the question like they wanted to be asked. To be asked. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Um, okay. <laughs> overrated. I don't know. <laughs> we'll, we'll give you. We'll yeah. give you a pass yeah. on that. You. you I, I think. I think we need to think about that before we put our feet in our mouth. <laughs> Fantastic. All right. Well, thanks so much for joining me. And uh, thank you, Jamie, for hosting us and keeping everything running. And uh, look forward to uh, the next work coming out of your group. Thank you very much. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. This podcast was brought to you by the American Journal of Physiology, Gastrointestinal and Liver Physiology, and produced by me, Jamie Jones. If you would like to hear our latest episodes, please visit the AJP GI and Liver Physiology's homepage.